thank you. And may that adoration put a holy light in us that the world sees. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for a place to come. Thank you that we belong. And I'm praying now, Lord, may our hearts be humble before you so that we can go home. And we do want to truly adore you. So save us from being mesmerized by the things of this world. And now, Lord, bless these moments we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Titled my message this morning, An Invitation to the Ignorant, the Heathen, and the Haughty. When we look at the story of Jesus, we realize he had a very inauspicious beginning at least as it relates to his ministry on earth. And this morning I want to reflect on all the ways Jesus tried to get people's attention. There was a priest cut from a different bolt of cloth whom God could reach and he was spoken to by an angel. He was told his barren wife in her old age would have a baby, and that baby would be the forerunner of Jesus. There were shepherds watching their flocks, looking for deliverance, and the angels appeared. And there was a group of men we call wise, but Pharisees thought heathen, who made their way into the city. And they bore witness that the prophecies were about to be fulfilled. Now, when we look back at these different groups of people, and I'm going to include just a few more in a minute, we see the shepherds as the Pharisees and leaders of the church, and I'm not just going to leave it in the hands of the Pharisees, it appears that the residents of Jerusalem saw them as well as the ignorant. And the men from the east who came in pursuit of what they thought was a deliverer, and they were confounded by an absence of messaging and readiness, they were the heathen and then we have those for whom the promises had been exalted in ceremony. And yet the Bible says he came unto his own and his own received him not. And they certainly cannot be categorized as anything but the haughty. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that the heart of Jesus was to reach every single one of those groups. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that every single one of those groups still exist. There are those who know very, very little and have minimal education and appear to be disadvantaged by their lack of learning. 
They remain ignorant. Uninformed is a less painful word. And then there are those that are, the, the, the Magi for sure were mistakenly labeled this way, but then there are those that simply have given themselves to the pursuit of that which is completely self-centered. And then there are those who say they know better, but they might not. I'm going to start and work backwards this morning. I'm going to start with the haughty and work my way back to the heathen and to the ignorant. The element of disavowing Jesus, the rejection of the Messiah, the Christ, the God in whom dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily, this is no little mystery or, or, or enigma, you know, one of those unsolvable riddles, how God would come unto His own and His own re would receive Him not. I'd like to suggest to you the roots of rejecting Jesus are sown in every heart, whether or not those weeds are pulled and whether or not a harvest of beauty and hope and righteousness and belonging and insight and understanding can be enjoyed and received is an issue for all to consider. If you have your Bibles this morning, open them, if you would, to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. Now, I'm going to read you something here that you can read in the fourth Bible commentary, page 1162. Big books, reference books. And before we read what's here in Isaiah, I want you to think about these words. Because the seed sown in the heart of humanity when it embraced the Luciferian government is an inheritance of our own. We possess this same potential. Writing as recorded, it was initially in a special testimony, but recorded in the fourth Bible commentary in regards to the words I'm about to read, the author says this, I ask our people to study. We're going to Ezekiel 28 in just a minute. They both deal with the same subject matter. I ask our people to study the 28th chapter of Ezekiel. The representation here made, while it refers primarily to Lucifer, the fallen angel, has a broader significance. Not one being, this is what I have in all caps, pay careful attention here, not one being, in other words, Lucifer who became Satan, but a general movement is described and one that we shall witness. A faithful study of this chapter should lead those who are seeking for truth to walk in all the light that God has given His people lest they be deceived by the deceptions of these last days. So I want to look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 momentarily because we're working our way backwards from the haughty through the heathen to the ignorant to receive the invitation. Isaiah 14, I'll be reading verse 12, 13, and 14. 
How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you've said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit in the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the Most High God. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28 where we find similar sentiment cloaked in the verbiage of the king of Tyre. Ezekiel chapter 28. In Ezekiel chapter 28, the gods of these cities had behind them deep spiritual uh, meaning. Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 11 says, Again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lament over the king of Tyre, and say, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So we see this transcendent sense about the city personified as the most wicked place and tied completely in experience and mentality to Lucifer. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapsus lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, and the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day you were created. They were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were in the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Now, I want to end on a good note in this message, so we're going to start on what went sour with the covering cherub. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I'm quoting. To whom does this apply? Satan was the first great rebel in heaven. On account of his power to deceive, he carried many of the holy angels on his side. God was, and we could say is, truth and justice. God moved in a straightforward course to vindicate his law. Satan must yield or evade God's arguments. He came where the two roads branched. It was submission or open rebellion. He took the latter position. He had misconstrued, perverted, and wrested the words of God until he carried with him a large number of the angels, a large number true, but for his deception. This next sentence is extremely important to everyone living in an arrogant age, everyone living in a self-important moment in earth's history, everybody living in a meta or Facebook moment. It's one thing to use those platforms for good. It's another thing to be a self-publisher for self. He practiced the work of accusing, of fraud, of deception, until he himself was his own dupe. 
He believed his own lies. His darkness was to him light, and light was darkness. To Satan, this was his ruin. And I'm going to read just a little more. He really had the advantage. He could lie, deceive, and accuse. God cannot lie. God moved in a straightforward course. Lucifer moved in a crooked, wriggly, twisting course, serpent-like. Lucifer could be warned at the beginning of his course of sin as only God can warn, but his stubborn resistance and unbelief construed every merciful interposition of God into a pressure and a restriction of his rights. Especially all you uh, parents parenting teenagers right now, I want to make sure you understood that sentence. Every parental warning can be misconstrued into a limitation of legitimate liberties for those burgeoning young people. But it's unfortunately not just an adolescent experience. It's an experience of humanity. He fancied himself for a time because he gained some of the angels on his side to be superior to God. The Lord allowed Satan to go on until he should reveal himself in his true character. Christ alone, by giving himself as a sacrifice, could destroy the works of Satan. You see, Satan suggested that God existed for himself. And when Jesus came to this earth and became a humble, dependent, impoverished little baby without pomp and circumstance, he was beginning to unravel the lies of Satan. When he was willing to suffer and carry burdens and hold responsibilities for people that would run him over, Jesus was unraveling the lies upon which the demonic kingdom was built. Satan had stood so close to the light and had so many privileges that when he chose to move away from it, that which had been advantage became deeper darkness and disadvantage. Unfortunately, as we're told, this does not relate just to a single person, but to a general movement, which the author says we will see. Now, it wouldn't take a tremendous amount of discerning to recognize that what was once good is now pronounced bad, and what was once bad is now good in this society, in this age, in this moment. And it has been accelerated and fertilized and fomented in the last five or ten years with an accelerant that could make the head spin. The truth of, the, of, of, of this reality is that in departing from that which was light and right, an entire culture of which the church is part. An entire culture has gone from seeing this as a nation of destiny, manifest destiny, to a nation primarily of limitation, in some measure oppression, certainly self-interest, and by the way, without the church working right, 
Without the calibration of the character of the culture, certainly democracy cannot exist. Should, should we not expect in this extremely secular age where not only has the church been left behind but been targeted as the source of our problems, certainly we should expect that this is indeed a general movement, not just a description of the general of evil. And I want us to think about this because if the arrogance of humanism and self-focus has the potential to make one who used to see blind, it might not be too hard for us to understand how a nation that said it was waiting was completely unwanting of the gift God gave. In other words, if a group of people pronounced to be righteous, but there is no self-sacrifice, there is no cross, there is no risk for the nations in darkness, there is no love that translates into surrender of privilege and a stewardship of proclamation. In other words, if, if, if the benefits of that lifestyle are turned onto self, it doesn't matter what its doctrinal statements say. The culture of even a whole group can rot in self-centeredness. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. And I fear it is exactly what has happened to so many of the churches, families, and social entities of this so-called Christian nation. Light refused, light neglected, light twisted just a little bit can all add up to a preparation and a path that leads to dwelling in darkness. Because I can proclaim I am a, a trustee of 28 fundamental beliefs, but if in the midst of those 28 fundamental beliefs there is no cross, there is no sacrifice, there is no stewardship on behalf of others, those 28 fundamental beliefs can be strangely twisted around me to where me is the blinding dynamic of life. I want you to think about this an awful, awful lot. A crossless Christianity will lead to the same darkness and the same unreadiness. This is why it's imperative that the love of Christ touches our heart and our hearts are touched to touch others in our world, close and far away. It is the outflowing of that love through us to a world in need, be it a husband, a wife, a child, a boss, a co-worker, a fellow student, a stranger at the grocery store. It is the love of Christ which keeps the heart of the recipient ready to see the journey Christ is leading us on. And for the nation of Israel, a deepening darkness around a self-centered religious experience was making them wholly unready to recognize, to receive, and certainly to proclaim the greatest gift ever brought to the human race. How is it that darkness should be not only on the Judean hillside, but enshrined in the hearts of the institutionalized church and most of its membership? Darkness 
We live in an age of arrogance and hubris and pride, and we are on a trajectory absolutely no different than the trajectory of those two millennia ago waiting for Jesus. We must be willing to be the salt and light, the hands, the heart for God. And in the midst of that experience, the ISAV is upon us to see. And the deceptions of the evil one cannot do their work. Think about it. How many of the established and the trained and the educated were able to even be connected with, let alone used by God? Oh, how I could wish that education wouldn't have this potential liability of filling one up with oneself. Oh, how I could wish that humanity was not so fragile that they had to prop themselves up with a house of cards identity that goes with how much money you can make or how big of a pedigree you have. Oh, how I could wish that our identity was completely and only in the knowledge of the extreme love of God that could not practice deception and would be completely true and who would triumph in the end even though temporarily it would look like dark was light and light was dark. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we and our humanity knew that we were heirs of the kingdom and children of God and we could see every individual as God sees them? But the truth of the matter is, we stratify. We, we create places for people. And in the process of doing this, we inadvertently pat ourselves on the back as we jockey and position and climb to make sure we're in the upper strata. It's wonderful to practice a Seventh-day Adventist lifestyle. It saves you from myriad traumas. And when people move away from it because it's based on the law of God, dysfunction mounts. It's almost impossible to look at our society and wonder how it actually still works. Homes that are completely broken down by willful immorality. People that are patently lazy and irresponsible to where employers feel good if they show up for three or four days out of the week to go to work or if they show up at all. Glad to put a hand out instead of offer a hand up, willing to indulge themselves in front of their plasma or LCD, able to lie without batting an eye. It's a wonder and the moment is coming. You hear it. I hear it in the secular media. The moment is coming when we will have had enough of the humanistic and humanism that is driving hard the free and unfettered expression of human desire. And all of a sudden, the pendulum swings the other way as the mandate for religion is upon us because we are so absolutely and utterly broken down from the inside out. This is where we are. This is where we're going. 
The party doesn't play on and on and on because truth still matters. Somebody's got to foot the bill. Somebody's got to be responsible enough to keep the train on the tracks. And yet this experience in in American culture appears to be largely unobjected to by the church and sometimes by parents. You just deal with one mom or dad who doesn't know what to do with their video-addicted child or their pornography-shackled son or daughter. All of that innocent pleasure, so little of that inconvenient irresponsibility of two or three generations ago where, where people were working all the time to survive. Oh, we've liberated ourselves right into a new form of slavery with an internal rot. But pride is not easy to abase. Hubris, self-importance, arrogance is a, is a disease that doesn't readily accept diagnosis from anyone except those on the inside, and those on the inside are similarly afflicted. So what does God do? He goes around it, completely around it. And he picks a young girl, a no-name, by the name of Mary. And he goes to groups of shepherds who smell like sheep and are disdained by the Israelites like they were by the Egyptians. 1,500 years before his appearing. And he talks to people in dreams and prophetic scriptures. This will be my subject matter next week as we look at the Magi. And he sends men on journeys that take days if not weeks. Why? To reach his own people. When we come to the end of Jesus' ministry, it's almost like we're getting the affirmation that it wasn't without fruit. Take your Bibles and go to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. Jesus is coming up to the last week before the crucifixion, and we see a similar thing happening again. By the way, I've said almost nothing about the fact that Jesus selected men and of course had women disciples as well but they were complete outsiders John 12 verse 20 this is the last week of Jesus life at least before the crucifixion he's in the temple Of course, the Greeks were limited on where they could move around about in those precincts. It says now there were some Greeks, some Hellenes, among those who were going there to worship at the feast. 
They came from the east in the beginning. They're coming from the west in the end. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they began to ask him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. We get the sense that truth will triumph. Love will win the day. Turn back to Matthew chapter 27, verse 54. We are seven days later. Jesus has hung on the cross through the darkness and the shaking and the rolling thunder. He has cried out, it is finished, and the people have been rolled into mobs as the earth has convulsed with the death of its creator. And there, when finally stillness reigns again, these words are spoken by a Roman centurion, verse 54, and the centurion and those who were with him keeping the guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that had happened became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. We have the heathen and the ignorant again. But there's more. Turn to the book of Luke, chapter 23, verse 42. The victory moment is in some respects more spectacular than the introduction moment. Luke, chapter 23, Verse 42, we have the darker of the dark in character. Luke chapter 23, verse 42. We'll back up just a verse or two, 39. One of the criminals who were hanging there hurling abuse at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him saying, Don't you even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? In other words, wake up, mister. You're about to die. Don't you have any sense of respect for a fellow dying human being? Can't you see anything different about him? And we indeed, verse 41, are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But look, it doesn't take a PhD to see this man's different. He's done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say unto you today, you shall be with me in paradise. And last but not least, I couldn't end without going to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We began with the haughty, and we shall end with the haughty who have humbled themselves. John, chapter 19, verse 38. And after these things... Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, to ask Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and he took away his body. And Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrhs and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen wrappings and the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You know, I want to tell you something. There's nothing like a good friend. Joseph will provide the tomb. Nicodemus will provide the spices. 
And it's at this moment that they both stand up and say, we're leaving the fraternity of the so-called faithful and we are following this man. The invitation to both the ignorant and the heathen and the haughty was one that Jesus hoped would be embraced by all. And if there is a message that proceeds out of the Word of God for us today at this Christmas season, is that it does not matter where you've been or what you've done. You could be the thief hanging on the cross. You could be the haughty Nicodemus afraid to be seen by Jesus in the daylight. You could be the Roman soldier with power and wielding it like a bully. So the Apostle Paul formerly saw. Acts chapter 6-7 says, The Word of God kept spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. God allows the darkness to deepen before the light is ready to be received. Friends, this morning, in this sacred hour of reflection that the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelling in this little bitty baby without fanfare but not without notice proclaim to the ignorant make sure you look down your nose as you say those words and then to the heathen supposedly in darkness but following a light but also to the haughty who didn't think they needed anything and thought they could get on quite fine without any interruptions to their preconceived ideas. Thank you, no thank you. Jesus is unwilling in this Christmas season for anyone to miss the opportunity to understand to those that choose to believe on Him, they have the power, the gift to become the sons and daughters of God. It doesn't matter how speckled your background is and how weak you think you are as you look at your own life. Look to Jesus. Remember that baby born in the manger was born for you. Remember he would have come just for you. Eve might have been the first, but if you were the only second, it would be enough. You see, the love of God, which is enshrined in the light of truth, came to make sure that we knew, even though rebuffed and maybe with superiority, unreceived Jesus pursues us still and in this hour of divine reflection as once a year this moment rolls around God wants you to know that universal expansion has been placed on hold the only thing is receiving redeeming and bringing home the lost sheep. This song we're about to sing was the favorite song of someone at the prayer meeting this week. We took a few moments to look at, at songs and why they mean something to us. And I want to make sure you notice the very first few phrases. Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. It doesn't matter what category the world puts you in. It doesn't matter what category you think you're in. Unless you're in the last one. 
I had somebody send me what I will call kind of a nasty gram. It was uh, one of those emails that should have been left to be looked at. It was so over the top and out of the box that all I said to the sender was, that was quite an email. Next time, pick up the phone and use Matthew 18 and Leviticus 19. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter whether somebody thinks you're good or bad. You're not to focus on your own life. You're to focus on the one who came to give you life and came purposely to give up his life, to be the one that received my sentence of capital punishment, your sentence of capital punishment. If ever there was a moment when every human being is called to reflect on the value of their person and to be reconstituted with the sense of their well-established priority to God. It is this season right here. But it's more than that. There are people all around you that need to know they're just as special to God as you are as a member of this remnant church. And the people in your home need to see you coming down off whatever high horse you might be tempted to live on listen kids if you're in a home where a daddy is demanding that's not a Christian daddy you honor him because he's your daddy but you just understand something. it doesn't matter whether he's a preacher or a president Christianity leads God's people if nothing else those wise men should have been received in a special way because they were strangers in a foreign land and the Old Testament is resplendent with how to take care of those people, but instead they were treated like they were in the way because they thought they had a more direct line on finding the way to the promises of 4,000 years. Yes, in this hour of earth's history, may God save any of us from the dishonesty of self that might come with the privilege of the lives we've had. And may we re-embrace the cross which Jesus was pointed to and may the beauty of that sacrificial love keep our hearts tender and humble so that we don't have to be passed by. And when he comes for his own, he receives them. May God bless us in this holiday season. You need to remember if it was only you, that would have been enough. So whoever God puts in your life, high, low, or in between, ignorant, heathen, or haughty, it's hardest with the last group. Make sure you take the light of the world to them and that they know the incarnation, the moment of divine mystery was just, just for them, if for nobody else. May God bless us in this holiday season. You're a child of God. Nobody else can categorize you properly. And may you be humble enough to be whoever you're called to be. There's some people out there that are bigger in their own minds than they could ever really be. And they need somebody, sometimes, whom they might categorize as ignorant or heathen to be the instruments of communicating divine truth. May God help each one of us to know the significance, the amazing value He's placed upon us. And may we be in this world of darkness 
the light yet to be received by many among the ignorant, the heathen, and the haughty. Just for you, friends, just for me. May God bless us.